The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome again to Fathom Church. Uh, It's good to meet with you this morning. As Chris said, my name's Eric Shelley. I'm one of the elders uh, here at Fathom. And I know Chris went through a lot of announcements, but I got one more bonus announcement. Um, October's Pastor Appreciation Month. And so we announced last week, but what we're doing this month to, to appreciate and honor our pastors, Chris Martin and Kyle Knight and their families, is uh, we're, we're just asking you to, we're, we're collecting cards um, and just some, some notes of appreciation for them. So out in the, uh, the glass vestibule greenhouse area out front, um, there's two baskets, one for the Knights and one for the Martins. And so we're just asking you all to write write them a note or a message and, and thank them for the way that they serve uh, Fathom. If you want to give a gift card or something like that as well, that's fine. Um, but most importantly, let these families know how much you love them and appreciate them. Um, take, a, take a few minutes to write, write a card. We'll have the baskets out there again next Sunday as well. Um, that would have been a little weird and self-serving for Chris to make that announcement, but uh, I, wanted, I wanted to do that. Uh, Pastor Appreciation Month is October. So, hey, please take out your Bibles. We're going to continue in the book of 1 Peter today. Uh, you can open up your, your own Bible. You can open up on an, on an app, or you can use one of the hardback Bibles beneath, the, beneath your seat. We want each person to have the text in front of them. We'll be in the book of 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. If you're in the hardback Bibles, it's on page 1016. So today's passage is it's a bit of a tough passage. It's it's not controversial like some, of, uh, like, like some of the passages that Chris just taught through on the government or, or on marriage. It's not, it's not controversial in that way. I don't think I'm going to be getting many, many emails um, or anything like that. But some parts of the passage are tough to interpret. There's a couple parts in here that are just tricky to interpret. When I started preparing, I, I spun my wheels a little bit with certain parts of it. Um, and it just took me some time to kind of get my head around what, what some of these parts were saying. As I prepared, I came across some comments from other commentators um, that kind of shared the, the idea that this was, this was a hard, uh, hard section. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer says, these verses in 1 Peter are regarded by many to be one of the, the most, if, one of the most, if not the most, confusing in the New Testament. Theologian Warren Wearsby said, when Peter wrote this section of his letter, he had no idea that it would be classified as one of the most difficult portions of the New Testament. Good and godly interpreters have wrestled with these verses, debated and disagreed, and have not always left behind a great deal of spiritual help. Then he adds, we may not be able to solve all the problems found in this section, but we do want to get to the practical help that Peter gave to encourage Christians in difficult days. So I guess that made me feel a little better, knowing that um, some other guys also thought this was a tough passage. And so normally we would just go through this passage verse by verse. That's, that's kind of what we do here at Fathom. But today I want to address two uh, harder sections of this passage, and then we'll, we'll work our way through the rest of the passage. Because that, the part of that last quote stuck with me. It said, we may not be able to solve all the problems found in this section, but we do want to get to the practical help that Peter gave to encourage Christians in difficult days. So that's what I want to try to do. So for me, there's two sections that are really tricky in this passage. The first is in verses 19 and 20. And so the question here is, what does it mean that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison? And then the second section is in verse 21, where Peter talks about baptism. What what does Peter mean when he says that baptism saves you? 
And so I'm thankful to commentators like Wearsby and Greer and D.A. Carson uh, for some of their, their insight to help me unpack these sections. But I want to deal with these two sections first. So spirits in prison, verses 19 and 20 say that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So kind of, kind of strange verses, right? Spirits in prison sounds more appropriate for this Halloween season than for a Sunday morning sermon. But who are these spirits? Why, why are they in prison? Some commentators think that the spirits are the fallen angels from Genesis 6 who came down and had relations with, with human women. Some commentators think that in the time between his death and resurrection, Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to a group of disobedient demons who were awaiting final judgment. He, and he kind of gave them a preview of what was to come, of a preview of his victory. And then other commentators think that Peter's making the point that Jesus preaches through his spirit. In the days of Noah, he preached through Noah. And today he preaches through us, through Christians. And back in Noah's day, no one listened to Noah. And, and now they're in prison or they're, they're in hell because of that, because they didn't listen to or believe in Noah's message. And so when we share the gospel or share our testimony today, we shouldn't get discouraged if it seems like no one listens. That's because even though no one listened to Noah, God ultimately brought about salvation in Noah's day through the ark. And we should believe that he'll still bring salvation in our day. And so it's this last idea that I think is most applicable, that through Jesus, God will ultimately bring salvation. Despite a culture and a society that may not listen to the gospel message being shared by believers. So that's the first hard section. The next one is right after this one in verse 21, which says... Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Or put more simply, this reads as baptism saves you. And at first reading, this, this could be confusing, especially when you compare it to other passages of Scripture that speak about salvation. Passages like Acts 16.31 that says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Or Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works. So is Peter contradicting scripture here? Is he really saying that it's baptism that saves you and not belief in Jesus that saves you? Or, or is he saying something else? From what I've studied, I think he's speaking in a generality here. He's, he's using a little bit of shorthand to describe baptism. In fact, if we read to the end of verse 21, he says, baptism is not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism is an appeal or a confession or a declaration of our salvation. It doesn't cleanse us from our sin. That was, that was done through Jesus' death and resurrection so baptism then is it's not the act by which we achieve our salvation. Rather, it's the act by which we declare our salvation. Pastor Chris has often used the illustration of, of wedding rings. So two weeks ago, my wife and I, we celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary, which means that 17 years ago, on our wedding day, we exchanged rings. 
But the rings, the rings didn't make us married. They, they didn't then, and they don't now. We're not married because of the rings. It was the vows and the covenant that we made that made us married and that make us married. It's a covenant that we've kept ever since that makes us married, not wearing wedding rings. So Peter's here, he's speaking about baptism the way we might speak about a ring ceremony. He's just kind of speaking in shorthand about it. Just like a ring ceremony declares your marriage but doesn't make you married, baptism declares your salvation but doesn't save you. So those are some two, two brief explanations of two difficult parts of the passage. I didn't want to sidetrack later uh, to explain them. So now we've got those hard parts out of the way, let's turn to the rest of our passage. Now, I enjoy working out. I, I, like, um, I like being active and exercising. I try to work out regularly. It's just part of my, part of my, kind of my, my, weekly, my weekly normal routine. I, I enjoy lifting weights. I've, I've done some CrossFit. Um, I like cycling. In the past year, I, I started running a little bit. Um, I, try to, I try to mix it up, have some diversity in how I work out. Um, one thing I don't really like, however, is fitness classes. Um, you know, fitness class, it's like, kind of like you're in a group of like, I don't know, a dozen people, and there's an instructor up there with a face mic kind of, kind of barking at you. Um, and, and, and classes are great for some people. They work for some people. Just, I just don't prefer them. They're, they're just not for me. When I work out, I like to put headphones in, listen to a podcast, and just kind of keep to myself and, and get my work done. Um, I don't want to be in a room with a bunch of sweaty, sweaty people and, and some, some instructor. Again, just, just not for me. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of workout classes but I've, I've been to enough gyms and, and I've seen enough of these classes to know that some of them promote suffering. <laughs> the idea is that the workout is going to be so hard that you'll, you'll suffer through it. Um, they'll give the workout names like Sufferfest or, the, or they'll have classes called uh, Suffer with Friends or Suffer Club. I even saw a gym named Suffer City. And so at the start of the workout, the instructor, they'll, they'll say something like, get ready to suffer, or, or Who, who's ready to suffer today? Prepare to suffer. They'll say stuff like that. They, they promote suffering through a hard workout because hard workouts can be really good for you. They, 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 can, they, can, they can be really good for you. Hard workouts can break down your muscles so that they grow back stronger. And if you're willing to work and struggle and suffer through them, they can be good for you. They can make you better or faster or stronger. So suffering through a workout becomes sort of a, a badge of honor. People, people want to do it. And working out in fitness, it was one of the only areas that I could think of where people actually look forward to some sort of suffering. Because usually we, we try to avoid suffering, right? We, we, in other areas of life, we, we avoid it. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to not suffer. I think that some, sometime and somewhere along the line, we, we got this idea in our brains that life is supposed to be easy. Maybe it's the idea of, of the American dream, that a family and kids and a house in the suburbs and an SUV in the garage will, will give you a smooth and easy life with no problems or no hard times. Or that a college degree is a path to a successful career and a successful life, and you can just afford everything that you need, and it's, it's free from suffering. Or maybe it's Staples selling us on the idea of the easy button. Do, do you guys remember these commercials? It's, it's the idea there's always a product that we can buy or a service that we can pay for or a shortcut or a hack that will make things smooth and easy for us. It'll, it'll, it'll make us more efficient and more successful with no setbacks or struggles or suffering. Or maybe it's been preachers and pastors who, who while they, they meant well, 
have sold us on the idea that after you accept Jesus as your Savior, then life gets easy. That without Jesus in our life, we're riddled with sin, and we suffer because we live worldly lives of sin. But once we accept Jesus, then we're free from struggling with sin and, and free from the impact of sin on our lives, and that Jesus makes our life good and makes our life easy. And so somewhere we've bought into all or some of this kind of thinking that life should be easy, but that's not true, is it? As we go through life, we find that none of it is true. Suffering still exists. And that's what today's sermon is about. It's, it's about suffering. I told my, my uh, youngest daughter that I was preaching about suffering. She said, that's kind of dark. I was like, oh. <laughs> But we're talking about suffering today. More specifically, we're going to talk about preparing to suffer. Suffering is one of the, the themes throughout the book of 1 Peter. In this passage, Peter tells Christians that in this life, we're going to suffer. And so we should be prepared for it. Be prepared to suffer as a Christian. Be prepared to live as a believer in a culture that is hostile to your way of thinking, under a government that is hostile to your beliefs. Be prepared to suffer for your faith and your belief in Jesus, and be prepared to suffer in this life in general. He's instructing, Peter's instructing Christians living in, in, in the Roman Empire to prepare to li live amidst persecution and suffering. And he's, he's saying that preparation is a key to living through suffering. And so I'm calling this sermon prepare to suffer. Sounds fun, exciting, right? <laughs> I'm like the workout instructor with a face mic. Welcome to Fathom Church. Be prepared to suffer. Let's, let's get into this starting in verse 13. Now, who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. So Peter starts with a rhetorical question here. He's making, he's making a point by asking a question. He asks, who's going to bring you harm if you do what is good? In other words, if you do what's right, you don't need to be in fear. For example, if you're driving along C470 and you're in the right lane and you're doing the speed limit, there's no, no need for your heart to race or, or for you to get nervous if you see a police car approaching behind you. We've all been there, right? You get, you get a little bit of a, a rush of fear. You start double-checking your speed, making sure you're not swerving or anything like that. But if you're obeying the traffic laws, if you're doing what is good, you don't need to, be, don't need to fear being pulled over and getting a speeding ticket. But remember, Peter's talking about coming persecution here. And in times of persecution, all bets may be off. Under normal circumstances, no one's going to bring you harm for doing good. But if you're being persecuted just because you're a Christian, then, then you may still face harm. And so in verse 14, Peter adds that regardless of how good you act or how righteous you are, you may still suffer or be persecuted. He's saying even if you are good and righteous, you may may face some harm, but don't fear and don't worry anyway. So some of verses in 13 and 14, Peter says to do good in all circumstances because it may help us avoid harm. But even if we do face harm, despite doing good, we shouldn't worry or fear. Why? I think it's because in times of suffering, we have an opportunity. Hard times or suffering or crisis create opportunity to share Christ. We have an opportunity to share our hope amidst our suffering if we're prepared. In verse 15, Peter gives us the first way that we can prepare. 
Verse 15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the phrase, to make a defense that Peter uses can be, can be translated several ways. It can be translated to mean apologetics, which refers to making a legal defense in a court before a judge, or it can mean more simply to give an answer or to explain, which, which is like just presenting a testimony or a confession. One commentator said that there's a difference between giving a defense of our faith and being defensive about our faith. I think Christians are great at being defensive about our faith. You've, you've been on social media, right? You've, you've heard these, these discussions and these arguments. But defensive arguments don't typically draw people in. They often just draw lines in the sand. But here, Peter's saying, making a defense of your faith means to declare or share or confess. I'm going to use the word confess. We're to prepare to confess our hope in Christ. Peter's saying that to prepare for suffering, we should be prepared to confess our hope. Now, often we hear the word confess and we think admission of guilt or confessing to the crime or fessing up. But confessing also simply means to declare or state your beliefs or your doctrines or your principles. We're to be able and ready to confess our faith when crisis and suffering hit. Peter, Peter knows that crisis creates opportunity to confess our faith in Christ. And Peter knows this because earlier in his life, he failed here. Remember, in a time of crisis, when Jesus was being arrested, people were asking Peter, weren't you one of his followers? And, and instead of confessing his allegiance to Jesus, he denied it. In fact, he strongly denied it three times. And even though Jesus later forgave and restored Peter, I'm sure denying Jesus was one of, one of the great sorrows of Peter's life. It was, it was a lost opportunity. And that's what Peter is pointing to here, that we are to confess a reason for the hope that is in you, and we are to confess it to anyone who asks. So think for a minute. Can you, can you state why you love Jesus and accept him as your Savior in, in a clear and succinct manner? Can, can you bring it into different types of conversations and discussions, maybe to a variety of different audiences or listeners? Being able to answer anyone who asks is easier said than done. It requires some practice and some preparation. And furthermore, Peter says to do this with gentleness and respect. And so he calls us to give our confession humbly in such a way that whomever we're speaking to is not turned off by how we say things, but rather engaged with what we are saying because how we say something matters just as much as what we say. And if we say something that's truthful but lacks gentleness or respect, then the truth will never even get heard. How many times have you been in, a, in an interaction online or, or in person, and maybe you read someone's online comment, and you think to yourself, yeah, he's right. Yeah, he's right, and he's an absolute jerk. It, it happens all the time. The message gets lost because of the way the message gets sent. It's hard to do gentleness and respect on social media or otherwise. It's, it's really hard. It takes some practice and some preparation and prayer. The past two years, our family and, and three neighbor families um, from our street have gone camping together on Labor Day weekend. And these, these are families that we've, we've become friends with. Um, each of the families has kids that are similar ages to my two daughters. And as this year, or this year as the trip approached, I began to pray that there would be opportunities for Anne and for me to talk about our faith with these friends. 
And so the last night of the trip, the kids and, and most of the adults had already gone to bed, but a few of us stayed up, uh, up around the campfire. I mean, that's the best part of camping, right, is, is sitting around the campfire. So we, we stayed up around the, the campfire, and, and we were talking, and at some point, the issue of same-sex marriage came up. Kind of a heavy topic for a campfire conversation, but um, it's a little bit touch, touchy, especially when not everyone around the fire is a Christian. But, um, but it came up, and what, what soon followed it was a question why do Christians view same-sex marriage as wrong? And guess who the question got directed towards? Yeah, it was towards the two Christians sitting around the fire, towards, towards Anne and me. And thankfully, this is a topic that we were already somewhat prepared to answer. Um, our daughters had started asking some questions about this. We'd been having some discussions with them. Um, I'd already thought about it myself and, and even practiced how I would, I would talk about it or how I would speak to it. So we felt somewhat prepared for it. And so Anne and I were able to talk about our belief in the Bible as truth and, and God's creation order, how he created a male and female, God's design for marriage and for children through marriage, and how the marriage relationship reflects both Christ's relationship to the church and God's relationship to us. And so we were able to share in such a way that eventually led to a follow-up question, which was, well, how did you guys come to your faith in God? And so we were asked to share our testimonies around that fire. Now, I'd love to say the people around the fire with us accepted Christ as their saviors that night and that I baptized them in the lake the next morning. <laughs> that didn't happen. And, and while that, that line of quest, questioning wasn't overly confrontational, it could have been. It, it, it could have, we, could, we could have got, gotten defensive about it and it could have turned into an argument or a debate if, if it wasn't done in gentleness and respect. But I felt like that night, Ann and I were able to live out verse 15. We gave a reason for the hope that we had in Christ by confessing Christ. We did it with gentleness and respect like we were called to be prepared to do. Be prepared to give a reason. Be prepared to confess Christ. What the hearer does with that is up to the Holy Spirit. But we're called to be prepared to confess our faith. I think one of the best ways to prepare to do this is to practice sharing your testimony. Practice your confession of Christ. Over the years, in, in every Fathom discipleship group or, or D group that I've been in, before we, before we start any study or sermon discussion, the first thing our group has always done is to share our stories. So for the first few weeks that our, our group meets, we just share our stories. Two or three people go each night, and, and we just do this until the, we get through the entire group. And our, our D group is actually still doing this. Um, we're still, still sharing our stories. We've got a few more people to go. The people in your D group are the people who will help you go deeper into community and go deeper with God. And so sharing our stories and testimonies, sharing how God has worked in your life, often how God has worked through the hard times in your life, is an amazing way for a D group to get to know one another. But it's also a great way to practice and prepare to give a reason for the hope we have in Jesus. We practice telling our story. We practice telling what God has done in our life in safe and welcoming places like a D group so that when the time comes, we're ready to share in less safe places, maybe, maybe even hostile places. It's one of the reasons we encourage our D groups to share their stories like this. Because the more we reflect on and share the reason for our hope in Christ, the more prepared we are to share the reason for our hope in Christ. Because one day it might, be, might happen in a different setting, with a different audience, maybe even an audience that's watching you suffer through something, something hard, and they're curious to see how a Christian handles suffering. Crisis creates opportunity to confess our hope in Christ. So be prepared to confess your hope in Christ. 
Let's keep moving. Verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So verse 16 starts with the phrase, good conscience. So let's talk a little bit about our conscience. I just mentioned my two daughters, and one of the results of having two daughters that love Disney is that when I hear conscience, I immediately think of the Disney character, Jiminy Cricket. You know this guy? He's a cricket. He's got a top hat and an umbrella. He's green, even though every cricket I've ever seen is, is black. Um, but, but anyway, he's, he's a conscience of Pinocchio. And so Jiminy Cricket tells Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide, and that if you're ever unsure of what you should do, your conscience will guide you. Now, I don't often agree with Disney on a lot of things, but I do think it's interesting that Disney chose a cricket to represent someone's conscience. Has, has a cricket ever gotten into your house or into your garage? You ever hear him chirping at night, that, that relentless, nonstop chirp, chirping? It's hard to ignore, and our consciences kind of work the same way. Our conscience is that internal feeling or voice that speaks inside of us. It, it chirps to us, letting us know if our actions are right or wrong. C.S. Lewis said that our conscience is how God speaks to us within our souls. The word conscience comes from two Latin words. Con means with, and sio means no. Sio is where our word science comes from as well. So together, conscience means with knowledge or to know with. And the with part is important because it signifies that the knowledge that we have in our conscience is a shared knowledge. It's a common knowledge. It's a knowledge of right and wrong that would be the same across a group of people. Remember, Peter is speaking to other Christians whom he expects and understands to have a shared knowledge of the Christian view of right and wrong. And this is, this is different from, from today's culture of personal autonomy. Today's culture says, follow your heart. Live your truth. And it wants each person to have their own personal standard for what's right and wrong for them. But instead, Peter's talking about an accepted and understood knowledge of behavior for everyone. There was no, what's right for you may not be right for me thinking in the early church. Instead, there's what's right in God's eyes is what's right for all of us. Our conscience helps us to follow God's truth and God's design for our behavior. So when we have a good conscience, that's God's voice speaking to us and approving our actions as right. When we have a guilty conscience, that voice speaks to us of wrong actions. And so Peter instructs us to have a good conscience he instructs us to prepare to be slandered or reviled and to suffer, all the while to maintain a good conscience in our response. And so this is the second way that we prepare. We prepare through conscience. This means to speak and act in ways that we know to be right based on God's word. We're to maintain a good conscience above all else by seeking to live righteously even amidst suffering. We speak and act in a right ma manner to fellow Christians to non-believers, and to those who may be against us. In times of suffering, keeping a good conscience will help us for several reasons. The first is that it gives us courage. A good conscience can give us courage. If we know that what we're doing is right, we don't need to fear what others may, may do to us. If, if we're right in front of both God and men, we don't need to be afraid of the outcome. Go back to what Peter said in verses 13 and 14. The righteous don't need to fear or be troubled. So even if we face suffering, we can do it with courage, knowing that it's better to suffer for doing good. A good conscience will give us peace. 
A guilty conscience can, can cause unrest or cause discontentment. It can keep us up at night, but a clear conscience gives us peace. We know we've done what is right, and so we can have peace or rest easy knowing that. We don't need to look in our rearview mirror when we're driving worried about that, that police car. That's what a good conscience or a clear conscience can do. It can give us peace. And then thirdly, a good conscience will give us confidence. We can face slander or insults or questioning or false accusations. And despite all of that, we can persevere knowing that we are doing what's right in God's eyes. I faced a situation once where a leadership decision that I made was, was really challenged by a lot of people. Um, I, I made the decision prayerfully uh, through reading God's word, through seeking counsel from other Christians that I trusted. And so I had a clear conscience about the decision and I felt that the de decision was, was right, but still the questions and the arguments and even the slander about me and about the decision, it came and it came relentlessly. But having a good conscience about the decision gave me confidence. It gave me some, some ballast and some stability amidst it all. It was still hard, but I had confidence that the, the hard decision was a right one. And so a good conscience gives you confidence amidst suffering or slander. And so the second way that we can prepare for suffering is through a good conscience. Through seeking to learn and know what is right according to God's word. And then seeking to live and act and speak in a way that is right. We prepare for suffering through our conscience. Let's finish our, our, our passage, uh, verses 17 and 18. Read those with me. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So I addressed the, the end of this passage earlier, talking about some of the harder, trickier parts in, in, in these verses. Um, and those two parts that I talked about earlier were, they were hard to interpret. But there's one more hard part in this section. Only this part is, is simply just hard to hear and hard to understand. It's, it's in verse 17. Read verse 17 again. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. It's better to suffer if that is God's will. In other words, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. This is a hard thing for Christians to hear. It's, it's a hard thing for, for Christians and non-Christians to hear. We don't like to think this way. We don't like to think of our suffering as being God's will. It's hard for us to understand. But when we think about our lives and suffering under God's will, Peter tells us that we should remember that Jesus also suffered under God's will. Remember in the days before he was crucified, Jesus was, he was in the garden and he was praying and he knew, that, well, he knew what was ahead of him on the cross. He knew what, what type of suffering was coming in the days that followed. And so he prayed, asking his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that it was God's will for him to suffer. So while we don't like to think about suffering being God's will for us, we understand that sometimes it is. Sometimes our suffering is God's plan. He's, he's at work. His plan and his will are at work even in our suffering, just like they were when Jesus was sent to the cross. And so we can follow the example of Jesus and submit to God's plan even when it means enduring suffering. That's what Peter tells us here in verses 17 and 18. As we prepare to face suffering, Jesus points to a third way that we can prepare. He points us to the example of Jesus. 
He says that as Christians, we're going to face suffering or persecution. We'll face it because of what we believe and who we believe in. Suffering shouldn't come as a surprise to us, especially if we're prepared for it. And if we're prepared for it, we can face it and endure it just like Jesus did. And so the third way that we can prepare is we prepare through Christ. We can endure suffering because Christ endured suffering. What's really cool about studying through a book of the Bible the way we do it at Fathom is that you can, you can start to see some themes emerge. You can, you can see certain styles that the writer may have in their writing or certain ways that they write to get their points across. And Peter, Peter's no different. Two weeks ago, Chris taught on submission to the government in 1 Peter 2. And in verses 13 to 20, Peter said that we're to submit to the authority of our government. And then in verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter gives us a teaching and an instruction, and then he points to Jesus and the life of Jesus as an example, the ultimate example for us. And he uses the same approach throughout his letter of 1 Peter. In chapter 1, Peter called believers to be holy. He first gave instruction on living lives of holiness, and then he points to the holiness of Jesus as our example. And then in chapter 2, Peter calls believers living stones that are part of a, a spiritual house. And he describes our roles as stones within the house, and then he describes Christ's role as a cornerstone and foundation of that house. And so Peter's using the same approach again in today's passage. He tells us to prepare for suffering through our confession and our conscience. And now he points to Jesus and tells us to prepare through Christ as our example. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Again, prepare through Christ. We can endure suffering just as Jesus endured suffering. We prepare for suffering through Christ, aiming to be like Jesus. Just as Jesus endured suffering and God brought about victory through it, we can endure suffering because Jesus has already won victory for us. Now in these verses, Peter also indicates that there are, there are different kinds of suffering that we can face. And Pastor J.D. Greer gave a helpful way to think about the different types of suffering. He calls them the three Joes of suffering. And he points to Joseph, Jonah, and Job. So in verse, 14, or in verse 17, sorry, Peter points out the first kind. He says we can suffer for doing good. This is the kind of suffering that Joseph went through. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery. He was, he was falsely accused. He was thrown in jail. But all the while, he was doing what was right before God, yet, yet he still suffered for it. And God used that suffering for good, to bring salvation to the Israelites. This is also the same suffering that Jesus experienced, and the same suffering that many Christians experience today. Suffering despite doing good. This is the first type of suffering. Then in verse 20, Peter talks about those who formerly did not obey. These were, these were imprisoned and are suffering for doing wrong, for their disobedience. And here we can think of Jonah. Remember, Jonah disobeyed God and he ran from God. And as a result, he suffered in the belly of a fish. And God changed him and his ways through his suffering. But, but this is self-induced suffering. We may learn from it and grow from it, but the suffering is a result of, of disobedience or sinful action. And then thirdly, there's suffering for no reason, or, or at least for no reason that we can see. This is the suffering that Job experienced. Job lost everything, his wealth, 
his health, his family, his possessions, and he had no reason or understanding as to why. It, it, it happened out of nowhere and for no reason that anyone could see. And this, this might be the hardest type of suffering because we try to understand the why behind it, but we can't, yet we continue to suffer. It may cause us to question God and ask him why we're going through such suffering because we can't see why. We may ultimately grow and change through it, but we don't know why God allows it. And so Joseph, Jonah, and Job, they're the three Joes of suffering. And church, the point is that suffering can come in a variety of ways. We may suffer and we don't know why, or at least we can't see why in the moment. Sometimes we suffer and we know exactly why, because we made poor choices. And sometimes we just suffer, we suffer despite living honorably and seeking to do things right. Suffering in this world can come in many, many forms. Maybe it's health-related. Maybe, maybe you're asking, God, why, why, do I, why do I feel sick? Why are you allowing me to feel this way? Why, why can't I get better? Why can't any doctor or specialist seem to help me? God, God, why is it cancer? God, why won't you heal me? Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. God, why did you take this person? They, they were so young. They were healthy. They had more life left to live. Why, why did you take them and, and leave me here without them? Maybe it's the loss of a job. You, you worked really hard at your job. You worked to the best of your ability. You arrived early. You stayed late. You, you, you dedicated yourself to the job, but yet you still got laid off. And now it's causing financial stress. Maybe the suffering comes through others. You're, you're gossiped about, or, or maybe you're mocked because of what you believe. And it could be in your office, or on the job site, or in the classroom, or, or on, your, on your street. But you're reviled each day, and it's really hard to be in that, in that place. And I know there's other forms of suffering going on in this room. I'm, as an elder, I get the prayer cards and the prayer requests, and I know there's stuff going on here that's hard. Heck, Ann and I are going through some stuff related to health right now ourselves. Church, suffering is a part of the world and of this life. Even when we seek to avoid it, even when we seek to do what is right and make good choices, it still comes. We need to expect suffering. And, and I'd love to be able to stand up here and say that if you believe what's in this book and live what's in this book, then you can escape suffering. You can avoid it. It's always easier to preach positive, encouraging things like that, but I don't find anywhere in this book that says that. There's no, there's no verse saying, if you do good and you do right, you'll live on easy street and you'll never suffer. It's not in here. Church, we're going to suffer in this life on earth. In fact, we're called to it. We're called to suffering. Suffering might be God's will for us. So be prepared to suffer. There's a saying that's often used in politics, and it's to the effect of never let a good crisis go to waste. And it's, it's often used pretty cynically about politicians who use a crisis for their own political gains. But I think the idea can apply here also. During persecution or crisis or suffering, when believers respond in a way that shows our faith and our hope, non-believers take notice. When we can confess our hope in Jesus amidst suffering, when we live honorably and with a good conscience amidst suffering, when we approach suffering the way Jesus approached suffering, 
It's so different that the world around us can't help but notice. When Jesus is reflected and confessed by believers, even and especially during times of suffering, then no amount of suffering is in vain. No crisis is wasted by God. All throughout this letter, the apostle Peter has been talking about suffering, that as exiles and foreigners in this world, believers in Christ are going to suffer in this world. But Peter's reminder is that we can prepare for this and expect it. We can prepare by using suffering as part of our confession of hope in Christ. We can prepare by how we live, living with a good conscience in a way that is honorable before both God and man. We can prepare by putting our hope in Christ and setting our eyes on Christ and his example through suffering. One commentator stated that, the verse, that verse 18 is one of the most succinct and yet profound statements in the New Testament, Testament on the doctrine of the atonement. And so I want to close with reading verse 18 over you again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Guys, talking about suffering is, is, never, is never fun. I don't, I don't really enjoy standing up here telling you to prepare to suffer or saying that suffering may be God's will or that your suffering, though hard, won't be wasted in God's plan. These, these things aren't always fun to preach, but, but verse 18 is. Verse 18 is our example, our reminder, and our hope. So let Jesus be our reminder today. Let Jesus be our hope in suffering. We should prepare to suffer, but Jesus is our hope in suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this life that we know is, is full of suffering. And suffering can come in, in, in so many forms, in so many ways, at, at so many different times. And God, I know that there's suffering going on in this room. There, there's, there's suffering going on this very minute. And God, we also know that it may in fact be your will. And God, that's, that's really hard to hear. That is a God that loves us and, and cares for us and wants to see us grow, that sometimes you allow suffering and sometimes it's your will. And so, God, I pray for, pray for the people this, that this very morning that are, that are going through hard times and going through suffering of any kind, that you would strengthen them in their, in their suffering that you would use their suffering, use their crisis as, as a way for them to confess you, to confess their faith and their hope in you. And God, give them the strength to do it with a good conscience, to do it well, to, to do it in a way that reflects you and, and your, your, your will for our, our lives. God, help us to always turn to your son Jesus as our example and our, as our hope as we look to the way that he suffered for each one of us and for, for our sins, as the way he was innocent and yet still went through the suffering, help that to be our strength and our hope today as we endure suffering. And God, maybe some of us aren't suffering right now, but God, we, we know that in this world, it's, it's gonna come. And so let us be prepared. Let us, let us reflect and spend time reflecting on, on the way you've moved and the way you've worked in our lives so that when that time comes, we're not only ready to endure suffering, but we're ready to confess you amidst suffering.
And so God, we, we understand and we believe that suffering may be your will for us. And so let us not waste it. Let us see it as an opportunity, an opportunity to confess our hope in you. And so guys, we turn to our, our time of, of response and reflection, God. Let us, let us proclaim your, our hope in you. Let us proclaim our faith in you in both good times and in hard times. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.